0: Hello everybody and welcome to Mrs. G's story time. We are reading the book Father Ten Boom, God's Man by Corey Ten Boom with permission of Light Trail Publishing Company and the Ten Boom Foundation. And we are in chapter seven, throwing out the lifeline. Father gave his evangelistic messages careful preparation. The following story was a part of a message on Isaiah 55 one, which read, everyone that thirsts, Come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. An artist once wanted to paint a ragged, miserable beggar. No matter how hard he searched, it seemed impossible to find a beggar who looked pitiful enough to serve as a model. One day, crossing a square in town, he noticed an old man, clothed in rags, sleeping on a wagon. "'What a heap of human misery!' "'This was his man. "'Shaking him out of his sleep, the artist said, "'My friend, would you like to earn a gilder today?' "'You can understand that the poor man "'accepted the offer with both hands. "'Well,' said the artist, "'come to my house tomorrow morning at ten o'clock. "'Come just as you are, with exactly the same clothes on.' "'The next morning at the appointed hour, "'the doorbell rang at the painter's house. "'As he opened the door,' He saw that the beggar had mended the holes in his clothes and shined his shoes. His face and hands were clean, and his hair neatly combed. He looked like a different man. The artist shook his head. No, my friend, I have no use for you this way. I chose you because you were poor and miserable. I need you just as you looked yesterday, as you really are in everyday life. I am sorry, but I cannot use you. The Lord Jesus calls you to come to him just as you are. He desires with all his heart to give you his riches. You do not need to bring anything. Yes, for the very reason that you have nothing, he will give you everything. Jesus said, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Matthew 18:11. In later years, Father wrote to my brother William, You must be careful to control your feelings and do not repeat the same thought. Even when you do it with somewhat different words, a sermon must be a journey in thought with definite aim, preferably a climax. You are like a guide who leads a company of travelers up a mountain to a point where their vision is clear and far. So in preaching, do not dwell on parts which you have already passed. Father understood the mentality of the people of his time. During the last half of the 19th century, there had been an overemphasis on man's personal experience. People thought they needed to feel deep sorrow and shed tears over their sinfulness before they could obtain forgiveness. Many would try to analyze their own feelings and were afraid that their conviction of sin was not strong enough. This dependence on one's own feelings caused young believers to fall into doubt and despair. Father understood these dangers. When Jesus calls you sinners, come. What is hindering you? I know. You're saying, not yet, because I do not feel sufficiently that I am a sinner. It is only when I have really felt the heaviness and the thirst of my soul that I can come to the source. Before that, I cannot be saved. No, fellow, this is not necessary. Jesus never said this. All he wants from you is that you simply believe and only believe. But you may ask, how far must I go? How long does it last until I can obtain it? It is so near, it cannot be nearer. The fish cannot get any nearer to the water, and the bird cannot get any closer to the air. You cannot get any closer to Jesus. His love is surrounding you on all sides. Through his finished work on the cross, he can save you from all your sins right now. I found in Father's Notebook the following stories that he used in his talks father is holding the rope a traveler in armenia crossed the country in search of rare plants and flowers on one of his trips he noticed in a deep cliff of a rock a flower of such rarity and beauty that he decided to pick it whatever it might cost him but how could he do it the sides of the rocks were so steep that it was impossible to climb down to where the flower was the only way would be to let someone else down into the crevice on a rope who would risk their life to do that After some searching, he found a boy and asked him to go down and pick the flower for a good sum of money. He encouraged the boy by saying, I will hold the rope very firmly. But the boy shook his head. I will not do that for all the money in the world. However, if my father comes to hold the rope, I will do it. The child of God is often in danger, hovering over the cliffs. But he can be joyful and calm because his heavenly father is holding the rope and he is safe. In Psalm ninety-four, eighteen, David said, When I said, my foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. The story of my father's reminds me of the words of Oswald Chambers, whose book of daily meditations, my utmost for his highest, was used by my parents in our prayer times. The nature of spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. Spiritual life is the life of a child, We are not uncertain of God, but uncertain of what he is going to do next. A joyful uncertainty and expectancy. April the 29th entry. Daddy knows. Where are you going, little lady? Asked the driver of the double-decker bus in London. The only person in that part of the bus was a very little girl who was sitting quietly in the corner. At first she did not answer, but after a moment's hesitation she said, I'm going home. The driver whistled a little tune, then asked again, But where are you really going? Home was the answer, this time in a rather worried tone. But where do you get out? The child looked at him with a puzzled expression, but suddenly her face lit up and she said happily, I don't know, but my daddy knows. Then she pointed to the ceiling. He is upstairs. Indeed, at the following stop, a broad-shouldered man came down the stairs from the upper deck and called, Come on, Rosie, this is our stop. Isn't it good that we can say, as this little girl did, Father knows. Whatever may happen, let us remember and say, Father knows, he is upstairs. As David said in Psalm 40, verse 17, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh upon me. My child is drowning. Some time ago, I was in London, and during my trip, I had to cross the great London Bridge. On one side of the bridge, I noticed a number of people crowding along the waterfront and looking down into the water. I asked someone what had happened. There's a child in the water, was the answer. And then from the left and the right, I heard people calling out, A child is drowning! And suddenly a shrill voice was heard that struck everybody with terror. My child is in the water! It was all clear to us that there's a vast difference between the statement, A child is in the water, and a personal cry from a mother's heart, My child is drowning! Not only that, God gave his son in order to save us, and this did not leave him indifferent. For him, you are not a child, but my child. What does that tell you about God's great love for you? What a tremendous price he paid to bring us out of sin to himself. The Bible says in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him so freely give us all things? Father as an ambassador. Besides preaching himself, Father helped and encouraged others to do so. He was vitally interested in anyone who made the Lord Jesus known as a crucified and risen savior. I found a letter that he wrote to mother in 1889 when they were still living in Amsterdam. Last night, Anna and I were walking in the street and noticed a crowd gathering along one of the canals. As we got near, we saw that the subject of their curiosity was a man on crutches. He appeared to be a worker of the Midnight Mission, a work which tries to reach the prostitutes. We started to chat with him. Meanwhile, the prostitutes who were standing close by began to curse and scream in a terrible way. When they saw that we were standing with the missionary, they, of course, began to insult us too. We were honored, and in no small measure. Father was in excellent company. It was said of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was a friend of wine bibbers and sinners, Many years later, when I started gospel work among the mentally retarded people of Harlem, Father encouraged me. Corey, every single person is so important in God's eyes. In the eyes of God, it could be that what you are doing now is the most important work in the whole world. Father's attitude when serious things happened. Once Mother came into the workshop and said, Cass, the Titanic has sunk. We have heard about it all over the radio. Father went to the living room with Mother and asked everybody who was at home. We have all heard about the big ship. It was so safe and so luxurious. Father did not accept the news and put it aside. I remember how he talked it over, even with the customers. There was a little antique drawing in the shop, an old-fashioned clock shop with the words, One has to be ready when the time comes. Just think, Father said. The passengers on the Titanic did not think much about danger. Those who belonged to the Lord Jesus were ready. Perhaps God called some at the last minute. The ship's orchestra band played Nearer My God to Thee until the moment that they were drowned. Use the acceptable time. Just ask yourself, now that there is still time, am I ready to face a righteous God? Next is chapter 8, Father and His Son. And I I do believe I'm going to read this second one because they were really pretty short chapters, so... Psalm 128, 1 through 3, sings of the joy of a man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. His wife is compared to a fruitful vine within his house, his children, to olive shoots around his table. One of the olive shoots which grew up around the oval table at the bayet was William, the only surviving boy of the ten boom children. Praise and Prison Let us go back to the year 1892. Tante Jans was sitting in a circle with her girls club. A frail five-year-old boy was sitting next to her. He had large, dark eyes. This was a birthday party of one of Tante Jan's club girls, and little William was allowed to attend. After the lemonade and cookies, Tante Jan's took her Bible and, following the old tradition for every birthday, read Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits. She then suggested that the girls mention some of the things for which they could praise God. That none of us has died, said one. That we're all in good health, added another. Suddenly the little boy pulled his aunt's sleeve and said with a grave look in his dark eyes, Tatian's, that we have not been put in prison. Little William did not know that one day, more than a half a century later, he would be put into prison, and that he would be able to thank God for even that. Too many guardian angels. There were no serious problems in William's youth although he might have suffered a little from the overwhelming majority of women in the house. Besides his mother and his three sisters, there were three aunts, all doing their part to see that he grew up to be a good boy. But in spite of this overdose of feminine touch, his youth was very happy. There was no evidence of any real clashes between him and his father. On the contrary, there seems to have been a beautiful, harmonious relationship between them. When William was 15 years old, he began to attend the Handel on Saturday afternoons. This was the training which the teenagers received to prepare them for service in the army. Whenever William started something, he did it with his whole heart. He very much liked playing soldier. Once during examination time, William needed to prepare for a Monday examination. And since he was not allowed to study on Sunday, father told him not to go to the von Mannheimdahl on Saturday, but to prepare for Monday's test instead. I looked at William's face and saw that he was making the decision not to obey father. Suddenly at mealtime, William jumped up, ran to the door, and out into the street. Without hesitating, father ran after him and in the middle of the street took hold of William's shoulder in a strong grip and brought the captive boy back into the house. I remember hearing William running upstairs to his room. It was a conflict the like of which had never happened before, and I started to cry. Years later, when William was no longer a boy, he said, That strong hand of my father's on my shoulder was one of the greatest blessings of my life. William's interest in spiritual matters was awakened very early. On Sunday afternoons, he attended a young men's club of the YMCA where he soon had a leading part. When he learned to play the organ, he became the organist for the prison services on Sunday morning. During his college years, he became fascinated with the Hebrew language. And he managed to talk a Jewish boy into giving him Hebrew lessons for ten cents for a whole afternoon. A love for the language of the Bible began to grow in his heart. It would never leave him. Wider horizons. When Tante Jan started her gospel work among the soldiers, William became a great help to her. His horizons were widened at a missionary conference which he described in a letter home. I have discovered here that Bartoliolstrat 19 is not the only place in the world where people really understand what counts. I am thrilled to see how the Holy Spirit is at work in Indonesia. Isn't it beautiful to see the same faith, which is so dear to us, being found a few continents away? The natural thing for William would have been to continue in his father's footstep and become a watchmaker. When the time came, it was decided that he would give it a try. But after one week in the workshop, William's decision was made. He told father he was not cut out for the watchmaker's trade and he was going to be a minister. Father said, I told my dad the same thing, but he decided I was going to be a watchmaker and that was that. I don't want to do the same thing to you. If you believe that God is calling you to be a minister, then you will study theology. Mother wrote about William's decision in her diary. October 1901. The Lord has kept the children and they are all prospering. Betsy is a great help in the shop. She's going to take bookkeeping examination and is helping her father with the books and other writing. She is taller than I am now, and we are all very happy with her. Our William is also growing up fast. His life has taken quite a different course than we thought at first. We wanted him to learn watchmaking, but soon saw he was not happy with it. It was a difficult matter. After much prayer and serious consideration, we decided he should go to high school instead of secondary school and he is now in the second class. He is learning well, and so far he is glad this happened. So William went to the University of Leiden. His studies added a new dimension of life to the Bayeux. Coming home on weekends, he would enthusiastically share his experiences in the family circle. Father used the opportunity to study several subjects with William, which provided them with many topics for discussion and deepened their already intimate relationship. And we're going to stop here, and next time it's going to be Silver Wedding. I love you, I'm praying for you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now.